Last week, I said something, I told a story that uh, may have offended some cat lovers in the room. Um, I just want to address that real quickly. I think cats are fine. I maybe not, maybe I wasn't made to live with one in my house, but you know, I think they're fine animals. I, I, I read something this morning that kind of sums up what I, what I think is true about cats. It says, I don't know whether or not there are cats in heaven, but if there are cats in heaven, they'll be very surprised that they're not the ones being worshipped. And even if you're a cat lover, you have to admit there's some truth to that. So um, maybe you don't. But Romans 12, verses 1 through 2. Romans 12, 1 through 2. We're in a series right now called Connecting. We're talking about worship. We're talking about why worship is important, what it really is, and how it can change your life. In fact, there's no real change without connection to God, and connection to God is worship. And we talked about what worship looks like. We've talked about what it means to sing in church, why we sing in church, why that's important. Last week, we talked about connecting with God on a regular basis. And I've been praying for you, and hopefully you've been praying for me, and praying that we each would connect with God daily this past week. Hopefully, this has been a very meaningful week for you. But today, I I want us to talk about what worship was originally. Because if you go back into the Scriptures, and you think about what worship looked like for the men and women of the Old Testament, and even for Jesus and those first apostles who grew up as as good Jewish boys in in their Israelite homes, what was worship for them? Yes, they sang hymns. That's what the Psalms are. Yes, they read the Scriptures and they heard sermons from their rabbis. But worship really, really consisted of sacrifice. What it meant to worship was to bring the best that you had before God and to lay it on the altar, whether that was a bull, a goat, a lamb, whether it was something out of your field. You brought it before the Lord and you set it on the altar. And the scriptures have very descriptive terms for the sacrifice. If you did a sacrifice that was really good, that was really worthy, and you did it the way God told you to, scriptures would say that God saw that sacrifice as pleasing. There are even moments where it says he smelled the aroma and he said, it is good. Almost like a man in a kitchen smelling his wife cooking dinner. But God loved that offering. If it was well given, if it was a well-chosen, well-given offering, He loved it. That's what worship looks like. And Romans 12 is written in that context. So as we read this together, keep that in mind. Chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. You see that terminology? You want God to be pleased with the offering you bring. This is how you do it, is what Paul is saying. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. We just had an inauguration of a president in our country a couple weeks ago. Back in 1980, this country inaugurated Ronald Reagan for his first term as president. And on that day, in the speech that he gave, he quoted from the diary of a man who had been killed in World War I, a man named Martin Trepto. Ordinary guy, worked in a, a barber shop in some small town in middle America, and volunteered for the army, enlisted in the early days of America's engagement in that war. And he was killed in France as part of the Rainbow Division. They found his diary on it. It was the only thing he had on him, uh, aside from the clothing he was wearing. And inside the flyleaf, he had written the following words, and this is what Reagan quoted in his speech. It said, my pledge 
America must win this war. Therefore, I will work, I will save, I will sacrifice, I will endure, I will fight cheerfully and do my utmost as if the issue of the whole struggle depended on me alone. And I read you that quote because I want us to acknowledge something you may already know, something you may not be aware of, and that is that we are involved in a great struggle. And I'm not talking about the war on terror. I'm talking about a a greater and more important war, even than what's going on right now, even than what went on in World War I in the the fight against uh, overseas enemies, because this is a battle that has eternal consequences. This is the battle for the souls of men, women, and children. It is the battle for the soul of our families, of our cities, of our nation. God has a plan. The good news is the outcome is not in doubt. We know who wins. The other good news is the the outcome doesn't depend on us alone. You look around this room. There are men and women and children in this room, all of whom, if they're in Christ, they have spiritual gifts, they have callings, they have, they have a destiny in God's plan that is different than yours and different than mine, and, and all wrapped up together, the, the group of us becomes the body of Christ, and it's fantastic. So, yeah, you don't have to do it on your own. There's all these people with you. And besides us, there's dozens of other churches in this county. And besides that, there's thousands of other churches full of the same kinds of people all across this country and around this world. And besides that, you've got God the lion and the lamb, who's doing his work. So it's not dependent on us. But if you want to offer God an acceptable sacrifice, what Romans 12, 1 through 2 is saying, and this is a foundational text. If you don't know this one, you should know it by heart. But what it's saying is God wants us to be that devoted to him. He wants us to say, I know, Lord, you've you've accepted me by grace, and I know that it's not all on me, but I want to live as if it's all on do to me. As if the whole thing rides on my commitment or not. I want to be that committed to you. I want to be completely sold out to your kingdom. And that is an acceptable sacrifice. And this passage, I think, gives us some important questions. Questions that we should write down. We should write down in the flyleaf of our Bibles or on our bulletins and stick them on our refrigerators or at the very least memorize them because these are questions we need to ask ourselves on a regular basis. Let me just tell you, the the four questions I see in this passage are not questions you're ever going to get to the point in this life where you're going to say, okay, I'm beyond that. I can move on. These are constantly challenging, constantly reevaluating kinds of questions. So here they go. The four questions in Romans 12, 1 through 2. Number one, Do I completely belong to Christ? And where I get that is Paul writes, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Again, written in the context of the sacrificial worship system of the Jews. Paul grew up in that system. He was good at it. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And what he's actually saying here, which is something he would have hated anybody else saying before he became a Christian, was God doesn't need any more animals. God doesn't need you to sacrifice bulls or goats or lambs or anything else on the altar. He wants you. He wants your life. He wants your commitment. He wants you to be fully His. And keep in mind, it's one thing for us in Conroe, Texas in 2017 to sit in an air-conditioned, centrally heated, padded, pewed sanctuary at a convenient hour on a Sunday morning and talk about full commitment. Paul was writing to Christians in Rome. It wasn't going on when he was writing these words, but soon would. Those people were going to have to decide, 
Am I going to call myself a follower of Jesus and probably die painfully in a humiliating way? Or am I going to slow play this whole commitment to Christ, keep it on the down low, and save my own life? Paul may not have known he was asking them that question at this point, but that's what the Holy Spirit was asking through Paul. Are you willing to give up your life if necessary? Unless something drastic happens in this country in our lifetimes, none of us will ever really have that dilemma. And yet, and yet, look at our lives. Look, look how easy it is to become committed to other things. I'm told that in Chinese churches, when a new believer is baptized, the pastor will say something like this. Now Jesus has a new pair of eyes to see with, a new pair of ears to hear with, a new mouth to speak his word, a new set of hands to do his work. And that sounds great, but that's not the version of Christianity that most American Christians practice. It's not. We may say that. We may nod. We may even say amen. But the version of Christianity that most of us practice, if you listen to the sermons we consume and the things that we say, the, the contents of our prayer lives, it's more like God is somewhere between an insurance salesman and a personal trainer because he's there to keep us safe from hell and other bad stuff, but he's also there to help us reach our goals, right? But really, he's there for us either way. We're not there for him. And the idea of what am I here to do for God rarely even comes into it unless we feel guilty once in a while. See, I think when you read the New Testament, the version of Christianity that I see is a lot more like a wild horse being broken. Now, I don't speak as an authority on this. I've never broken a wild horse. I would not want to. I did grow up in the country. I did grow up around cattle. I'm not a cowboy. I'm wearing boots just because it gives me an extra half inch, okay? <laughs> but you, you, you're familiar with this process, right? A wild horse, one of the strongest, fastest, most fearsome creatures on earth, and suddenly it's captured, and everyone thinks, oh, no, because it's just this romantic image, this wild horse roaming the plains. But think about what happens as a, as a kind man bends that animal to his will. And it doesn't happen overnight. It's not a quick process. But if that horse will bend its will to the will of the rider, what happens? He now has a home. He now has someone who will care for him day and night. He now has a purpose in life. He now has a better life. Why? Because he has chosen to give up his own will, his own independent streak, and give it over to somebody else. Those of you who are horsemen and horsewomen will say, a horse with even a little bitty independent streak is not one you want to ride. So ask yourself the question, have I been completely broken by Christ? Have I completely bent my will to His? Ask the Holy Spirit to come into your heart and say, Lord, what is there in me that is not completely yours yet? What is there in me that I still haven't let go of? And the more you bend your will to His, the more you find the life that He promised, the life more abundant. And by the way, I'm spending more time on this point than the other three. The problem with a living sacrifice is that it is completely able to crawl off the altar at any time. And that happens to us too. 
I know that we're evangelical Christians and we talk all the time about come to the Lord, come and, and pray the sinner's prayer and get baptized and come into the house of God and, and become his child. And yes, that's real. And if you've done that, if you've given your heart to the Lord, you are his and you're his forever. And scripture says that if you've accepted his sacrifice for your sins, then you're justified in his presence and there's nothing more you need to do to go to heaven. But salvation is not just about a ticket to heaven. Salvation is about becoming the person God created you to be. And the day you accepted Christ was the day your story began. The day you started to become saved. The day you started to become the person that God wants you to be and that you've always wanted to be. So here's the thing. Heard about a married couple and uh, she was complaining to her husband how come you never tell me that you love me? And he said, listen, I told you I loved you on the day we got married. If I change my mind, I will let you know. And that doesn't work. And it doesn't work in our relationship with God. We have to daily, daily remind ourselves who our master is. We have to daily recommit ourselves to the Lord, not because he's insecure, but because we need to be reminded. I'm living for him, not for me. So the flesh doesn't take over all over again. Do I completely belong to Christ? That's question number one from Romans 12, 1 through 2. Second question, am I standing out or am I fitting in? Am I standing out or fitting in? He says, do not be conformed to this world. And if you read the New Testament enough, you know that whenever the writers of the New Testament use the term this world, often they use it in a negative sense. I'll give you one very uh, extreme example. John will say anyone who is a friend of the world is an enemy to God. But then on the other hand, the same guy, John, wrote in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So which is it? Well, you have to understand those are two different usages of that term. God's talking about two different things. God loves this world that he made. He loves the people on it. He gave his life for it. He's commanded us to love each other. But on the other hand, when he talks about the world in a negative sense, what he's saying is the way things are in this world is awful. The violence of this world, the, the prejudice of this world, the, the hatefulness, the selfishness, the sensuality, the, the willingness to do whatever you want just to gratify your own needs, no matter what it does to other people, no matter what God says about it, all of these things, the greed, the, the self-centeredness, that's the way things are in this world. And God is saying, don't be one of them. Don't be like them. I read, I'm, I'm reading a, a devotional right now by a guy named A.W. Tozer. Some of you are familiar with him. Uh, first part of the 20th century, really deep kind of writer. And he said something I found interesting this last week. He said, there's nothing more awkward looking than a goose walking. If you watch a goose walking around on solid ground, it just doesn't look graceful at all. But if you watch it fly, it's amazing. And he said, in the same way, we as, as God's people, if we're following Jesus, we're going to look awkward. We're not going to fit in with the rest of the world. People are going to look at us and go, that doesn't look right. He's just not doing it the right way. But someday when Christ returns and we set sail with him, we're going we're gonna to soar. We're going to be glorious because we'll finally be in the place we were meant for. And here's the question you need to ask yourself. Do I fit in so well with this world? No one can even see a difference between me and them. Do I fit in so well with this world? Everybody thinks, no, 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 this is, this is his home. This is, this is where she belongs. 
Or am I, am I so different, so distinct, people say there's something different about that. And by the way, when I say different, I don't mean arbitrarily weird, okay? You know what I'm talking about, right? Because you know some Christians who are arbitrarily weird. They're not more kind. They're not more joyful. They're not more welcoming. They're not more loving. They're just weird. They just choose some random stuff and say, well, I'm not going to see those movies. I'm not going to listen to that music. I'm not going to wear that. And that's going to make me holy. It doesn't. We need to ask ourselves the question, what's the difference between me and somebody else who doesn't believe in Jesus, and if all we can come up with is, well, I go to church on Sundays and I don't say a few dirty words, guess what? The Pharisees played that game a lot better than you and I ever will, and they rejected Jesus. So we need to be different. We need to be distinct in ways that are compelling, in ways that draw people in, in ways that show people the glory of God, not our own arbitrary weirdness. That's my new favorite term, arbitrary weirdness. So get used to it. Number three, third question. Am I continually allowing God to change the way I think? He says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And and that word transformed is a Greek word that is pronounced metamorpho. And the reason that sticks in my mind, I was not a great Greek student, but that word stuck in my mind because it sounds like an English word, metamorphosis. And that's the term we use whenever a a caterpillar turns into a butterfly. And think about that transformation. I mean, a caterpillar, nobody collects caterpillars that I know of. Nobody plants a caterpillar garden. But then it transforms into a butterfly, and everybody loves it. it. It can fly. It's got these new capabilities. It's got this new beauty, this new glory. And that's supposed to be happening to us. We're supposed to be transformed. And I know, here we are, it's the end of January. You know what that means, right? That means there's a lot more room in the gyms than there used to be in the first part of this month. Because everybody made their New Year's resolution, and everybody showed up at the gym on January the 3rd. And the people who are there every week are like, oh, great, I can't get to any of the machines. But by now, everybody's pretty much given up on that, right? So all the tourists are gone, all the New Year's resolutions are gone, and the the real people are still there. Change is hard. And I'm talking superficial change, like working out three times a week. Real change, the kind of change that makes you a better friend, a better neighbor, a better worker, a better parent, a better spouse, a happier, more joyful person, that kind of change. That's impossible unless God's involved. And then He transforms you. And it happens starting up here. It happens with the renewing of your mind. And I like the way the New Living Translation renders this. It says, let God change you into a new person by changing the way you think. When's the last time you changed the way you thought about anything? And and if you're 40 or younger, don't point your finger at people with gray hair because you can be just as stubborn. Look what happens every time Facebook changes, okay? Or they bring out a new iPhone. We don't like change. We're stubborn. We're set in our ways. When is the last time you let the Word of God teach you something new? 
When's the last time you said, I've never noticed that before? Or, I've heard that before, but I never really saw how it impacted my life until now. When's the last time you went up to somebody and said, listen, I have to repent before you because I've been treating you the wrong way? When's the last time you stood up in front of your life group and said, I just have to confess that God's been dealing with, dealing with me in a certain area of my life, and here's what it is, and here's what I'm changing as a result. That kind of stuff should be happening all the time. In fact, you want to know when, it, when you know a church is in revival, it's when that stuff happens every week, and not just to the same person, to all of us. Ask God, Lord... Am I not exposing myself enough to the Word of God? And when I am, am I not opening my heart to it? Because I want you to change the way I think and therefore change the rest of me. Fourth and finally, do I know what God wants for my life? He says, after all of this, after you've uh, offered your body as a living sacrifice, don't conform to the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He says, "Then, then you will be able to test and approve what is the perfect will of God? Well, that's good news, isn't it? Have you ever wanted to know God's will about anything? Anybody? I mean, surely you have. When I was 17, 18, I, I became famous, uh, famous, I became fascinated with this, you know, English, you know, fascinated with this idea of discovering God's will because to me, it was the way to be successful. If I, if, I, if I knew God's will, then I would know where to go to school and what to major in and um, who to hang out with and, and where to live and what to do for a living and who to marry, and all that would all just come together because God would tell me. And I got very frustrated because I would pray and say, okay, Lord, I got this big decision, what should I do? And I wouldn't hear anything. I didn't hear any audible voice or get any signs or even a deep feeling in my gut. And I wondered, maybe all those people that I heard about growing up who said, the Lord told me this and the Lord said that, maybe they were just making it all up. But then I learned. I, I, think, I, I think the Lord showed me. My problem was I was treating God like a magic eight ball. Remember the, the magic eight ball? You know, should I, should I ask her out? Maybe. Well, that, that's no good, Right? And we were, I was using God that way. I was like, okay, God, show me, show me what to do. I wasn't really interested in a relationship with him. I wasn't interested in following him. I just wanted him to tell me what to do. I wanted God to show me how to be successful. And I realized the way to know God's will is just like this passage says. To offer your body as a living sacrifice, to, to give yourself completely to him, to come to the point where I could honestly say, okay, Lord, even if I never meet the right girl and get married, I'll be happy serving you as a single man the rest of my life. Even if I don't find a career I love and I'm doing work that I don't really enjoy that just pays the bills, as long as I got food on my table, I'll be happy because I have you. Lord, I just want to serve you, whatever that means. Send me to Africa, send me to Antarctica, wherever you want to send me. I want to serve you. And when that's my mindset, and it's not just a show, it's real, that's when I can actually hear God's will because all my desires and goals and demands aren't getting in the way. That's how you know the will of God, by surrendering to Him completely. So, let me ask you this question. Those are the four questions of Romans 12, 1 through 2. Let me ask you this. Why do you think it starts with these words? Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy. 
because it doesn't seem to fit. I mean, this is a passage about full commitment. I mean, General Patton didn't say, hey, charge the enemy bunker in view of my mercy. He said, go charge. Why would Paul say, offer your bodies as living sacrifices and don't be conformed to the, to the way of the world, but, but be transformed by the ruining of, of your mind in view of God's mercy? Why would he say that? Here's why, I think. Because if he didn't say that, and we pull this out of context, we would think that there's this line in heaven where God says, okay, the truly committed, once they cross the line of, of absolute total commitment, they get in. And everybody who falls short of that line of total, absolutely true commitment, they fall short. And if that's the case, guess what? God's standard is going to be way higher than any of us will ever reach because we're just too weak. But that's not the story. See, the story is that Jesus looked down upon us. And he became a man. He came into this world. Why? To offer his body as a living sacrifice. So that you and I, through his sacrifice, could become holy and pleasing to God. And that's why the Bible calls us saints. Did you know you are a saint? You are a holy one set apart for God because you're under the blood of Christ. His sacrifice is sufficient for you and for me. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. When you offer a gift, when you offer an, uh, an offering on the altar, it's like bringing a gift before God. I don't know about you, but I'm a terrible gift giver. I try, I, I, I think really hard, but I don't give good presents. I'm never the guy who, who gives somebody a present and they're like, yeah, this is exactly what I wanted. And I'm especially bad with my parents because I don't know about you, but my parents don't seem to actually need anything. You've ever noticed that? I mean, parents, they kind of have their own thing. They've, they've built their own life. They don't really need anything from you. And so every year I'm like, Carrie and I are like, what are we going to get your dad? What are we going to get your mom? I don't know. What did we get them last year? Did they like it? I'm not sure. And I'll tell you this, if my place in my parents' family came down to whether or not I gave good Christmas and birthday gifts, I'd have been an orphan a long time ago. But fortunately, my mom and my dad say, we don't really want any present you have to give, we just want you. And I understand that as a father. And I know that when my kids give me something, I mean, even if they gave me something that was the wrong size, even if they brought me the ugliest shirt you've ever seen, even if one of them, which wouldn't happen because they're both incredibly talented and way more intelligent than your kids, but if one of them brought me <laughs> some kind of craft or art that was horribly ugly and disfigured, I'd know this came from mine. Therefore, I love it. It doesn't matter how skillful they are at choosing a gift, it matters that they gave it to me. And because of the sacrifice of Christ in view of God's mercy, what we offer to Him, as long as we're offering Him ourselves, is exactly what He always wanted. And it is holy and pleasing in His sight.